All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fucksters? What the fucking nucks? What the fucking avians? Today, uh, the amazingly talented Jack Antonoff is on uh, is on the show, and Jack is uh, his bands were initially uh, Steel Train, uh, then the band uh, Fun, uh, which uh, I think I would think it was last year. Uh, won the uh, song of the year for We Are Young and and also the best new artist. Uh, the song Carry On was also a big hit. These are pop songs. This is not my world. This is not my wheelhouse, but I'm not unable to appreciate it. Uh, particularly fun. I mean, I get it, man. I mean, it's no easy trick to write a song that makes millions of dollars or to get to get millions of people to like your song. It's a real gift. And this guy, Jack uh, Antonoff, has that gift. Uh he does perform at the end of the show. He does an acoustic version of one of the uh, the new songs uh, off of the uh, the Bleachers debut album. This is his post fun project, which is more just Jack. Uh, and that Bleachers that debut album, Strange Desire, is available now, and they're going to be on tour this summer and fall. You can go to bleachersmusic.com for more info. And he does play, and and uh, Jack is appearing courtesy of RCA Records, which is a division of Sony Music Entertainment. But I, I will tell you this about it. You know, when I talked to this guy, I didn't know a lot about him. But I generally will go, um, you know, I, I a friend mentioned that uh, he liked my show and that I would love him. And that friend uh, was Lena Dunham, who is uh, Jack's uh, significant other. And I'm like, all right, well, I'll check him out, Lena. I'll check him out. And I went and bought all the records. And I listened to all the records. And I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's got a gift He's got a songwriting gift. He's got a very earnest approach to uh, lyric writing. Uh, it feels real to me. And also the sound, the evolution of the sound of his work from Steel Train through Fun on into Bleachers. is It's a phenomenal arc of, of, of style. Like, how did he get from one place to the other? So I was sort of fascinated with him. And after we had a conversation, I, I really feel like you know, this guy is one of these rare people that has a true gift, an amazingly talented guy, and very articulate. Articulate. I'm looking out of a window. I'm looking out of a window in New York City. I don't know. You know, I'm just, I, I miss New York all of a sudden. I lived here for years. I don't know if I could live here again. I don't know if I could afford it. I don't know even if I could, even if I did have the means to do that. I don't know if I would do that because that's just the way I am. I'm afraid to spend money. Look at that. They're digging a hole. Oh, you can't see it. There's all, it, I'll tell you, man, New York City, no matter what time of day, day or night, there's always some guys with hard hats in a hole doing some maintenance, keeping the pipes and veins, arteries together underneath the ground. God knows what's underneath this ground, but it can't be in good shape. There's always dudes in holes. With tractors and tools. I always find that fascinating. That New York is just a giant, crumbling, organic entity that uh, requires constant maintenance. And they seem to do it. They seem to build things. that It never stops. All eras of architecture are, are uh, represented. That's for sure. But somehow it all makes sense because New York can absorb it. Like even if there's this big modern piece of shit right over there, unattractive, Right next to it, there's something probably from the, the 20s. But, you know, in some places, if they build some modern piece of shit, it will just destroy the entire environment of the entire town. 
But here it's just sort of like, now yeah, we got room. The other, uh, the other buildings are sort of like, yeah, let that guy hang out. It's all right. He's not, he's not, uh, he's not showing us up. It's a little embarrassing. That's an impression of a building I just did. This guy thinks he's a hot shot. That's all right. I've been here a long time. These hot shots come and go. Oh, it's terrible. Should be ashamed of himself. The vanity of that uh, vestibule. Fuck these new guys. Again, an impression of a building. I think that uh, what I should do is perhaps uh, go out into the street. That would be good. I should go out into the street. Why don't I go out into the street? Oh, let's go out and let's go out. So let's walk around New York a little bit and see what happens. Let me interface with the city and then dump my brain into this mic for you. Okay, I'm out in it. I'm on uh, Bowery and Third. Let's go down Third Street. I used to live down here, but further down, and I don't. I always gravitate towards the Lower East Side. I, I don't know what it is. I have no interest in uptown at all. It's sort of like in Los Angeles as well. I live on the East Side. I don't have, you know, if I have to go to the West Side, it's it's like a tremendous chore, and I have to pack a bag and probably a tent. I think genetically I'm supposed to be down here. I think if you're a Jew, is that, am I really going to bring that into it? Is that possible that, you know, just my proximity to Orchard Street and... Uh, <laughs> What is it, Hester Street? That, that there's some part of my uh, my biology that is compelled to those blocks from when it was, you, you know, just uh, just people with you know pickle barrels and strange snacks on carts. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I don't really know. But I'm walking down Third Street towards where I used to live. I don't know. It doesn't seem that much different. I think I get creative ideas when I wander around the streets of Manhattan because the last time I was here, I became I became obsessed with the ground. Like, you know, there's like at, at the bottom of lampposts or planters or around mailboxes on the ground in New York, there's always this very odd collection of garbage and trash uh, and, you know, pieces. Of, I mean, it's the middle of the summer and the last time I was here, like, you know, like what, what here, I'm right by some sort of sewer grate or like a drainage grate. There's a Hershey's wrapper. And, uh, yeah, some cigarette butts and a sticker. But, but the last time I was here, I kept getting obsessed with the bases of lampposts, thinking, like, wow, I should do a photo. Like, here, here's a hairnet and uh, half an apple. But I, I became uh, sort of obsessed with the bases of lampposts. It's like, well, if you frame that properly and you had a good camera, that'd be sort of an abstract art uh, photograph. So I, was, uh, I pictured um, an entire series of photographs of just... Uh, you know, well-framed uh, bits and pieces of weird garbage. See? See? That's what I could have been doing. Why didn't I dedicate my life to that? It's the middle of summer. Like, look at right here. Like, why is there a pair of gloves in this garbage here? Why, why is that? What's going on? Where'd they come from? What's the story? What's the backstory between behind the winter gloves in the middle of summer uh, at the base of a lamp? You know, the Hells Angels headquarters... I think it might be further down on 2nd or 3rd Street. They, they actually have a building here in New York. This is where their corporate headquarters are. And I always liked walking by it. It always gave me a weird feeling. But also the feeling of, uh, of something, uh, something historic. Like uh, you know something nostalgic from the 60s. It's like, I had no idea they had a franchise here in New York. Of course they have a franchise here. Well, franchised organization. But you know, you don't, you don't see many storefronts. 
you know, Hell's Angel storefronts. Holy shit, there it is. There it is. Yep, I guess it's I guess it's still open. It's a big sign out front, Hell's Angels, New York City. The Hell's Angels on the door. Hell's Angels, New York City. Yeah, it's uh there it is. That's their clubhouse. Looks exactly the same. They've got some cones out in front. Oh, there's a chopper. They've got some cones out in front, a couple bikes parked out in front. Yeah, it's just a, you know, just a clubhouse. It's where the fellas hang out. Wow. Why is that? I don't know why that moves me one way or the other. I guess it's sort of ominous and kind of interesting. It's been there forever. I used to walk by it all the time because we're heading down to where I used to live. Oh, look, there's some more garbage organized in a unique way. Oh, I remember what the name of my exhibition would be called. It would be called Look Down, Abstract Photos by Mark Marin, Random Assemblages of Artifacts Discarded on the sidewalks of New York. That's it. That's uh, the gallery card. And then I'd ha- you'd see the photograph. It'd be the gloves, maybe a, a, a rusty key, and uh, some cigarette butts. I used to spend my life just trying to find a fucking parking space on the Lower East Side. You, your car would get broken into for a nickel down here. And they used to, you, you just sort of knew in this neighborhood that you didn't park in front of this storefront where the doorway was, where the dope doorway was. And one night I was like, fuck it, man. I can't find a space. I'm parking in front of the dope doorway. And I did that. And then I woke up in the morning and my tires were all flat. And there was a bunch of dudes standing around, including the little scary old man. And I'm like, what the fuck? And they're like, yeah, man, look what happened to your car. I'm like, well, yeah, what happened to my car? Knowing I was talking to the guys that did it. They're like, I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't have parked here. Great. I get it. All right. And, you know, it's weird when you have this relationship with, you know, criminals in your neighborhood. You, 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 you want to try to keep the peace and you want to try to have an understanding. And I'd somehow cross the line. And I'm like, all right. And he's like, then one of them goes, you going to need tires, bro, you know? And I'm like, where the hell do I get tires? And I'm like, there's a place around the corner. And I'm like, all right. So I go around the corner to an affiliated criminal operation of some kind to get temporary tires. And I come back, and two of these dudes who flattened my tires were now in my car going through my glove compartment. Now, the real question about that scenario is, like, why did I trust them to watch the car? I mean, what the... I must have been out of my fucking mind. Yeah, I got the tires. I never parked there again. But uh, it's an exciting time. It was an exciting time living down here. We go around the corner and... uh, go see uh, the street where I used to buy Coke from, uh, from Jimmy, lived upstairs, the, uh, the ongoing cocaine salon. So for me, what I used to do is I used to try to get there early. Like I used to try to get there before the night really started. I used to try to get my Coke, you know, like at five or six in the afternoon on Friday or Thursday or Wednesday or whatever it was. So in my mind, so I could get it all done, you know, by the nighttime get it past me, get beyond it, and hide it from my wife at the time. But there's this one time where, there's a great Lower East Side memory. I used to go get, I used to go get a bindle of Coke, and then I'd go down to a 7A, or no, this bar down here, and just knock back a pint. There's nothing better than, oh boy, I think I'm getting the drips. There's nothing better than, 
<laughs> doing those first few lines of Coke and then just having a cold pint of Bass Ale by yourself at a bar with your brain on fire. Ah, oh, Jesus. I better go to a meeting. Oh, here's another weird composition of garbage. What is that? What are those? Oh, they're like lychee nutshells. See, it's, uh, it's uh, surprising if you look at everything with an, an aesthetic eye, you know, you, you can see the beauty in things. See, some people would just walk by this and see it as garbage, which I'm about to. But for a moment there, it looked like art. So, yeah, so, okay, so I'd go over there early. And, uh, and one time I went over to Hammerhead's. You know, it was like a 6-4 walk-up. And it was a lair. It was like a complete sort of like, you know, abstract art, insane man cave situation up there. All kinds of art and action figures and weirdness and darkness. And, but I went up there like 536. So I get there. He let me in. And I walk up the stairs. And I'm like, come on, man. Let's go. What do you got? And he's like, uh, I don't know. what I, I, don't, I don't know. The guy hasn't come yet. So like my guy's guy hadn't come yet. And so I'm like, all right, well, so we go into the back room where he used to, you know, we, where the couch was and all the stuff was and where he'd sort of have his little cocaine salon, people coming by. He was a good Coke dealer. He'd always put stuff out. He'd step, you know, he'd step on it, but, but it was nice to, you know, have a place to sit and talk and sweat. So I get there. It's like 536. He, we go in the back. It's still light out. And he closes the blinds to like sort of get set up for the night. And the buzzer rings, and a guy comes, a little guy, a little Latino guy with a uh, ponytail, shows up and speaks to uh, Hammerhead in, uh, in Spanish. And, you know, obviously, this was something that happened regularly. And hands him this wad of tinfoil and then goes away. This short, old Latino, it must have been in the 60s, the ponytail and the cap, gives Hammerhead... A wad of tin foil, and then walks away. And then Jimmy brings it into the back and opens it up, and there's just this rock of cocaine, you know, like a like bigger than a golf ball sized rock. So this is the main stuff. This is the stuff right off the brick from wherever that comes from. So my coke dealer's guy had just delivered my guy his stuff in pure form. So Jimmy and I are sitting there, and I'm like, wow, that's it, huh? That's it? That's the real stuff? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, well, let's do some. He's like, all right. So he cut me up a couple lines of this stuff right off of this rock, right out of the guy's hands. I do two lines of this stuff right off of this rock, and I just felt electricity ripple up from the top of my sinus passages all the way down my spine and just like wow, everything just like little tingly explosions all over my body and I felt like I could fly I felt I just oh okay and I look at Jimmy and I'm like holy shit why don't you, why don't you sell that stuff and he looked at me and he said because people would never leave me alone. And then I watched him take this golf-sized rock of cocaine and drop it into a bag of stepped-on garbage from last night and just pound it all out. 
into whatever he was going to sell. There's there sadness to it. There was a sadness to it. But I also understood it. And I'm glad that I had no real access to whatever the hell that, that Latino guy brought over. Because, boy, God knows where I'd be. God knows where I'd be right now. Hey, Mark. Hi. Thanks, man. What's going on? Selling beer here? Yeah. I was just talking about this place. Yeah, 7B. I'm walking around, so I'm doing... Doing a little tour of the old neighborhood? Yeah. Because yeah. I was just talking about going down there to get my blow <laughs> and coming right here to have the first beer after I got jacked at his house and how beautiful it was. Yeah, it still is. Oh, no, don't tell me that. Don't tell me that. I'm sure it hasn't changed at all. Why? I don't need to go back there. I'm, I'm, just, I'm coming up on 15 years sober. I, I want to get out of here now. See you later, buddy. Don't worry, folks. I, that was a, a dramatization of a possibility. I have no desire to go down that street and walk into whatever the hell I was in 20-some-odd years ago. Holy shit, 25 years ago almost. I got to be honest with you. Tompkins Square Park, it's nicer. It's definitely nicer feels warm it's it's nice it's nice i'm just gonna go down and see if he's there i'm back i made it back to the hotel i did not go to my old drug dealer's house to see if he was home that was done for effect i did not even want to go over there there was no part of me all right Maybe a little part of me, but I'm back in the room safely, uh, had a nice walk, and uh, uh, this week's episode tonight of uh, Marin on IFC is called White Truck. It was based on a, a fairly dicey story I told some of you here on the show probably a couple of years ago about being in a particular situation uh, that was not, uh, was not safe, nor was it uh, pleasant. And uh, that's all I'm going to give you. I will give you this, though. Uh, my friend and uh, uh, prince, fellow Prince of Darkness, uh, Mr. Jerry Stahl, uh, wrote, uh, wrote tonight's episode. And you can definitely feel the, uh, the, the Jerry Stahl vibe on tonight's episode of Marin. So, so watch that. Enjoy that. Thank you so much for watching the show. Next week, uh, the, uh, the episode I directed, The Joke, is on and it was very important to me that i directed that because it deals with a very dicey challenging topic of uh, joke theft where that comes from let's go now to my conversation with uh with jack antonoff what were we saying about blues it, it is it, it's sad that it's hard to listen to because uh, what is it about it though I don't know. I think it, it's so fun to. It's like it's like um, it's like jam band music too, right? Like I could jam for hours, right? But if I had to listen to it, it would be terrible. Well, yeah. I mean, but it's because it's it's predictable. But there are some things that you know. There are some blues guys who are like that's pretty good. But you're right. It's not for every mood. No, it's not. You have to be high for jam band music, and you have to be in a specific like third phase of anger from a broken heart to enjoy blues right or you have to be like i'm just gonna fucking do it yeah or like blues needs like a setting like you'd have to be in like a specific car and a specific road playing sure, some sure blues for guy, it to feel right yeah you have to direct your life 
yeah. around the blues music. It's you can't put it on at any, any, any point. But who? But like then, who are your guitar heroes? I love I love Jack White. Really, I love Jack White. I love, my, a lot of my guitar heroes aren't. He's they, a blues man. He's a blues man, but, but he's a noise man. It's interesting. Yeah, I love Tom Waits as a guitar player who doesn't get referenced a lot. He doesn't get referenced a lot. Um, I, What's that guy's name? Mark Rebo usually plays a lot from you. Like Mark Rebo. I love Mark Rebo. I love the Afrobeat stuff he does. Uh huh. Um, it's almost like good Santana. Right. Because Santana had that. You know, there's that famous performance at Woodstock, and then to me, everything else after that sucked. But that was so cool. Well, on um, on one of the Steel uh, Train albums, you basically do Santana. Basically, which song is that? It's you know like, exactly what I'm yeah, talking about. Yeah, that was the album I did. I did this. I was into drugs at that point in my life. I'm very clean now. But on that album, I worked with the producer who did American Beauty. We went to Northern right. California. Yeah, David Grisman. Is that his name? Grisman. Yeah. So it was all. It was all. Is it Grisman? It's Grisman. Yeah. Well, that. <laughs> so so you're like, let's go all out. Yeah. Let's fucking do it. And that was the last time I ever go to a destination studio because I think you lose yourself. Seriously. Yeah. Is you gotta be. You gotta be home. Listening to the what listening to the shit you did on the speakers that you listen to but, things normally. But on. is that how you're going to explain that first uh, Steel Train album? Definitely. That you lost yourself. That you were impressionable. That Dave Grisman bullied you into playing hippie music. No, I bullied myself into, into doing an album <laughs> that I couldn't stand behind years later. Really? It's a sweet record, but like, I mean, let's let's go back though. How, you, you say your last name Antonoff? Yeah. You're a Jewish kid from New Jersey. In, in every way. Yeah, I mean, I, I my roots are in New Jersey, not Bur- not Bergen County. You're from Bergen County? Yeah. What town? I was born in New Milford. New Milford. And then I think my parents made more money, and then we moved to a town called Woodcliffe Lake. Woodcliffe Lake. Yeah. Uh, my family's from uh, Morris County, I think. I know it. You do? Yeah. Uh, Pompton Lakes. I know it. You that's, know Pompton? That's not far. Right, exactly. It's like 20 minutes. Do you know the milk barn? No. Oh, it's probably gone. It's an ice cream place, I think on the Hamburg Turnpike. I know Is the that- area. Yeah. So yeah, my grandfather owned uh, an appliance store and a hardware store, Pompton Lakes, New Jersey. My mother grew up there. I go to I used to go to Pompton, Honda, and Suzuki to buy trailers for my fifteen passenger vans when I would do tours. You just buy a trailer for the tour? No, I just over the past fifteen years of being in a van, I, I've bought like six or seven different trailers at Pompton. Yeah, so you know New Jersey very well. New Jersey very lush in the summer. It's humid. New Jersey is a, a wonderful place, specifically because of its proximity to the greatest city in the world. That's right, and that's why it's so special. Everyone from New Jersey always feels like they're looking in the window of the party. Right, but, but you can leave the party, unlike people who are stuck at the party forever. Totally. So you can just go home and crawl into your bed with your posters and your headphones, <laughs> and be okay. I didn't realize how special it was till I got older and moved to New York City. How special the distance was? Yeah, because everyone I met that was from New York City had like done all the drugs, had all the sex, seen all the bands by the time they were 13. It was over. And it was over. <laughs> yeah, and I still, I'm 30, and to this day, I still think it's so cool that I live in New York City. Yeah, it's amazing. I, I, I remember going to visit my grandmother, because I grew up in New Mexico, so I'd go visit her in Jersey. And at that time, when I was like 14, 15, she would let me take the bus into Port of Authority by myself and just do a day in New York City. Just put a kid on the bus from New Mexico <laughs> and knock yourself out. Go wander around Times Square and it was nasty then. Yeah. When I think back on it, when I mean when did you start going in alone? Started going in alone in the 96ish. How old were you like 15, 16? Yeah. Yeah. And we go in the, the West Village, it wasn't nasty or dangerous, but it was all transvestite hookers who would get in your face, you know. Way like, west. Yeah. Yeah. Christopher Street was yeah. a real scene then. Yeah. And why'd you go there? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that just seemed like, that's where we're going to go in New York to see what's really happening. I grabbed, you know what? I was really into 
a little bit later, but I saw Hedwig in the Jane Street Hotel basement when that first happened. Right. And I think I just got excited by that culture and wanted to be around it. Sure. How many siblings you got? I had I had two. Now I have one's dead. That's sad. Yeah. Um, what happened? My youngest sister, about 11 years ago, died of brain cancer. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. It's just the worst thing ever. I'm sorry. Um, but now, so there, I one, sorry to uh, it's okay. spill so much so early on. It's just, whenever, actually, we have this argument a lot in my family, because when you get that question, it's like, what do you say? Yeah. This is fair, because this is not a light moment as as much as like when someone's like oh like yeah right, how right, many, you know, right. so i usually just say like oh i have a sister right because it's just not leave the other it. part out but I, I you know i figure we're going to talk for a minute how long ago did she die 11 years it's a long time it's a very long was time. she young she was 13 i was 18 wow that's yeah. a rough time very every my entire life is based off of that moment it's music everything how so because i it was the single most monumentally important thing that has ever happened to me and probably will ever happen to me. Yeah. And so I've, you know, my whole life, it's just like a, you know, some, something froze there and I think I'm constantly looking back on it and dealing with it just from a different lens. So I feel like I'm 30, I'm dealing with that at 30. At right. 40, I'll be dealing with that at, I don't think that goes away. I wouldn't want it to go away. It's that, so, that feeling of loss. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, at the point when most people are, I think going to college and having this sort of freewheeling moment in life, I missed that. Right, because you were consumed with... Which the, I think was f- formative for me. And how long was she ill for? Her whole life, but not like... She didn't would not have appeared sick. She just kind of went in and out of being sick. Oh, God. Yeah. And and, and that was taken away from you. And what 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 kind of uh, family did you grow up in? Um, A good one. Yeah? Yeah, they're... Uh, my, my parents and my other sister, Rachel, were all... I mean, it's kind of hard to remember everything before that, but we're extremely close. Mm-hmm. Still? Yeah. Like, I talk to my every member of my family a number of times a day. Really? I would not be able to go to sleep if I didn't have contact with each and every one of them saying, like, love you, night. Really? Yeah. And is that something that happened after your sister passed away? Absolutely. Because there's a, a maybe a little bit of, of worry and panic and, and appreciation? Lot. Yeah. Like, we don't want to lose any more. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> if we lose any, I, that, I don't know what I was, that, that wouldn't work for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting. So there's this like almost compulsive need to connect as often as possible. Very much. Still alive. Hi, mom. Yeah. And it's not like, sometimes it's like, sometimes it's like we're, we're all in bad moods, but we're connecting. Right. Like that right. part's just inherent. It has to happen. <laughs> alive, but not happy. There's nothing I love more than a still alive text. <laughs> I mean, do. Don't, do you have people in your life where you're just wondering if they're dead or is that more my thing? <laughs> Just me. Okay. Just, like, I, I, whenever I go to sleep at night these days, I'm like, what am I going to, is it going to be a tomorrow? So it's, uh, I is don't Is that a stressful thought for you or just a, or just a question? I don't know. Like I turned 50 and I didn't think it bothered me. You look good. I, I appreciate that. But lately I've been like, you know, having these weird physical symptoms and I'm nervous and I'm like, getting, becoming hypo, you know, a little, uh, I, I used to be a hypochondriac and now it's sort of back and it's like, it's driving me nuts. I'm with you. You are? You I, have that? Terribly. Really? It's, um, why well, it, I, uh, well, I've, battled with a lot of ocd mm-hmm. and not in the annoying way where people are like i'm so ocd like you know real issues where like it, what were what how that manifest itself the, the biggest way it manifests well it's, it was always just little things you know like organizing counting but as i've gotten older it's gotten worse and the biggest way i was so terrified i had a terrible acid trip um which is another very formative thing so to stay sort of chronological about three years after i lost my sister i was in like a totally post-traumatic stress place and right I was doing some drugs. I did acid, and it totally freaked me out. I had like the quintessential the, bad trip. The first time you did it, yeah, 
Yeah. And I became completely convinced if I did it again, I would lose my mind. I'd become schizophrenic or whatever. And then I became completely convinced that I was going to get dosed. Because I was playing a lot of so festivals. So you like you were gonna like you're gonna get side you're gonna get sandbagged by some idiot ruin my life and then lose your mind and so then I became obsessed in this very obsessive way about not drinking anything that wasn't sealed. I wouldn't drink water to rest. It just it at a fear of dosage at a fear of dosage things I would touch. It just went into and and so that that part of the brain it just finds ways to manifest. Cut to uh, three years ago, I was making. The, the the second fun album yeah some nights we worked with a that's hip- a big record yeah that one did well um we worked with a hip-hop producer who was working these crazy hours very opposite of how i grew up yeah long story short the process of making the album was so hard on my body i developed a horrible pneumonia and i almost died yeah i went, I went to the icu and ended up in the hospital for five days and then home on intravenous antibiotics for like three weeks it was crazy wow and since then i'm so connected with this idea of you know have you ever been sick where you're just where you're really knocked out yeah it's really terrifying, and yeah. now I'm, I'm I'm working on it hard, but I'm in a very hypochondriacal <laughs> hypochondriacal stage. What in place. terms of being uh, uh, on top of your health, what you eat, insanely on top of my health. I'm on a cocktail of different supplements that I what think are, are actually interesting and are working. Like what? Immunoconoco, cold effects, selenium D. I saw a, a specialist who just put me on all these different things that just boost your immune system. Really? Yeah. Because I take a few things. I believe in it. You do? Yeah. Why not? That's all that matters. If I have to take 12 <laughs> pills every morning and they're not going to kill me and they, there's a tiny chance they'll help, I'll do it. Right. Until you get tired of it. Yeah. Until one day comes, you're like, I just want to see if these are doing anything. But you know what? A doctor said something to me, which I'll say to you because I think it might, it might make help sense me. to you. Okay. Is um, you're going to feel this way until you're 120. What? The, that the, you're going to die. The pain. <laughs> 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 it's a very optimistic doctor. Well, I appreciate that. Guys like you, I don't think die. I, God, I hope you're right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, certainly my father just seems to be fighting the good fight. All right, so you're sort of a New Jersey kid, and, and before tragedy strikes, what are you doing? Because I listen to a, a, a lot of your music, a lot of it. Really? Yeah. There's a lot out there. There is, but like I, I knew you were coming in, and it was weird. It was one of these things where, okay, I'm going to do some research. You know, this guy's guy, he had a hit record. He won a Grammy for a song. Which song was that? We Are Young. Yeah, big song. It was a big song. Big, with the kids, so I'm an old man. Yeah. So, so like, a lot of stuff you you may have done, <laughs> I just didn't, it didn't come across my desk. <laughs> so, you know, then I talked to your girlfriend, and uh, and she tells me about you, and then I heard about you. So then I got to go get all the records, and I get all the records. Mm-hmm. Get all of them. Not this stuff from before you made records. Yeah. Maybe there's some bootlegs or you have that stuff. I'll send them to you. You will? <laughs> Do you have them? They're, they exist. But I got the Steel Train records and I got the uh, the fun records mm-hmm. and I listened to the Bleachers, uh, the two singles. So cool. I'm, I'm up to speed. Wow. Yeah. Is that enough? I wish everyone would do that. Is that more? Is there more? No. Well, I've, I do a lot of work with other people, but that's not as... Some songwriting and some producing? Yeah. But the the thing that I, I came upon yesterday is, uh, holy shit, this guy's sort of a genius. How did I not know about it? Thanks, Mark. Sure. <laughs> like, he seems to know what he's doing. He seems to be a little unclear about his identity early on. <laughs> and there was a big shift that was kind of confusing to me. Well, maybe you've had that in your career where it's like, have you had moments that you thought were supposed to be worked out alone in your bedroom that got worked out in public artistically? Sure. That's what a lot of that was. Right, but but because your talent is fairly uh, 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 um, um, focused and amazing, you know what you were able to do 
developmentally, like with the the first Steel Train uh, record, was create this beautiful, uh, strangely lyrical, almost uh, proto-hippie album. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, then the second Steel Train record's like, what the fuck happened? You know, it's it's a lot different. And then I'm I'm reading up on you, it's like, oh, two dudes left. That must have been it. Those guys were holding them back. They were making them play, have mandolin and pedal steel. <laughs> like, I couldn't quite put it together. But, like, where did it start for you? I mean, what were you always a bright kid? No. No? <laughs> you, well, not, not in school. What'd your, wait, let's, let, me, let, me, let me try to generalize your uh, middle-class Jewish upbringing. What did your father do? Business. In the, General in, business. In, like, a broad way. But he's an amazing ragtime guitar player. Really? Yeah, and he studied studied with Reverend Gary Davis. Really? Yeah, and he um, he what what? So he was a like a young Jewish man who says, "I need to learn this black man's music." Yes, and I'm going to seek him out. And and he went to his house and would study with him weekly. Where? Where did he live at that time? Bergenfield, New Jersey. Reverend Davis. Reverend Gary Davis lived there too, I guess. He lived in New Jersey. Absolutely. So your dad kind of got strangely obsessed with this old blues man, My basically. dad was obsessed with that music, ragtime, like a very like gritty southern version of ragtime. Right. Um, and he has these demos, which I should email you because they're incredible. He, You would never guess it was a Jewish guy going to Boston University from New Jersey. I went to Boston University. You did? How old is your dad? 59. Yeah. Would have missed him. The Howard Stern era. Yeah. Well, that was the one before me. Yeah. So he... Okay. So he's a business guy, obsessed with... Uh, with, but he's like classic boomer, like that. There was a time there where that kind of music was, you know, and it was not unusual for someone to be obsessed with that music. No, yeah, that w- that made sense. Yeah, so so he's he's an amazing guitar player, unbelievable, like a, a specific style of finger picking that is so like skilled. Uh huh. You know, just where, where you have the thumb constantly going. Yeah, like I don't I can, know how to finger pick at all. It annoys me. It's very like here. I'll show you. Like one sec. It take it takes me. Uh, it's too much discipline. Like this kind of stuff. Like this is a song you showed me. Like that kind yeah. of like crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, that stuff's very impressive. It's very impressive, and it's also very like Lindsey Buckingham, like that kind of crazy stuff. Oh man, he can play, man. Yeah, and you know, to like, do it with soul is really. Do you ever hard. think about that? That that, that what happened to Fleetwood Mac after Lindsey Buckingham? I mean, he turned it out. I mean, that was it. It was all Lindsey Buckingham. Yeah, he seems way more troubled than his physical appearance would suggest. Because he looks like Paul Reiser. <laughs> a little bit. And my dad. Yeah, and your dad looks like that as well? Yeah. It's, a, it's the Paul Reiser, Richard Gere, Lindsey Buckingham sort of... Yeah, Jew. Yeah. Except Lindsey Buckingham's not Jew. No. I don't think so. There's no way. No, I don't think Camp... Not with that name, unless it's not his real name. Not with that kind of anger. <laughs> no. Well, I know. I, I, there are definitely many angry Jews. It's, a, it's more of a self-hatred thing. Right, we do it inward. Yeah, we 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 we. Are you uh, a Jew? Yeah. Okay. We uh, we manufacture our, our. Is that an insane question? Kinda. It's kind of an insane question. Your it's face okay. is way more symmetrical, and your features are taking up way less real estate on your face. <laughs> I don't know. I I, I mean I, I I'm certainly sort of vocal about it to a point of uh, where it may annoy people. But yeah, I'm a Jew. I'm I come from New Jersey Jews, not okay. unlike you. So you grew up with a guitar playing father, yeah, in a nice upper middle class household, yes. And were you a troubled kid? No, no. You seem just... very well adjusted. I, your generation bothers me. Um, no, everything was really fine. Everything was fine. Well, my sister was always sick, so that was not fine, right? But everything was. I don't really remember much, right, about that point in life. Like I was really into punk music when I was like thirteen to seventeen. I had a punk band. That's all I thought about. You had a punk band, yeah, and I would just play in like fire halls every weekend. A white, a working punk band, yeah. 
We and, did well. And really? Well, I mean, no, but yeah. What was the name of the punk band? Outline. So it was Outline. That yeah. was your first band. My first band was called The Fizz when I was nine. How, do you have any Fizz records? No, but we had a song called Last Week's Lunch. <laughs> what was that about? Which was a very, very specific thing that only grade schoolers could relate to about leaving lunch in a locker. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't. So you, it wasn't broad. <laughs> so you. So you had this sort of ability for for a, a humorous slant on songwriting early on. It wasn't humorous at the time. It was very real. No, those were the issues that I was dealing with at the time. <laughs> yeah, the issues of the day. Yeah. <laughs> were why's my locker smell? <laughs> All right. So after Fizz, you took a few years off. No, I was one into another. Oh, really? Yeah. You were in Fizz from nine to thirteen or fourteen. Yeah. And then we started Outline. But you, Fizz was an organized band. Yeah. How? Who was in it? guys that i went to private jewish school with yeah and we just practiced every weekend when did you start playing guitar what age uh i think like eight okay -ish. and seriously playing pretty pretty right away i my it went like stamps coins star wars guitar <laughs> is all i remember from my life <laughs> <laughs> and your father must have been thrilled I think so. Did you? Did he give you one of his old guitars? How yeah, a Martin D thirty five. You started with a Martin D thirty five. Here cool you go, that? kid. Here's the best guitar made. Yeah, have one of these. Exactly, which he bought in Boston, and couldn't afford. I think he went to the store, and it was a little more than he thought. So he didn't have money to get home. This is such a like story that we'd only imagine happening in the seventies. Yeah. So he played on the street till he had enough money to take the bus back. I wonder if he bought it at Wurlitzer Music. Hmm. I don't out. know. I don't know. Got to find out. <laughs> So you get your Martin D-35, a sweet-ass guitar, and a dad that can pick the fuck out of ragtime music. Yeah. Did he show you... Was he your first teacher? No, I had this guy named Van who would come to the house. Van. Yeah. What was his story? What was his hair like? Um, it was like a bouffant. He was a Frank Sinatra impersonator. It was his uh, day job. <laughs> or I guess I guess teaching guitar was his day job. It was his other job. He was a Frank Sinatra impersonator? Yeah. And a guitar teacher. Mm -hmm. What was the first song you learned? Um... I think it was like I think it was an old Aerosmith hit. Oh, really? Yeah, like I think I learned like the, like the Mama Kin or something. From, oh, uh, um, Sweet Emotion or something. Yeah, one of those. Bing, I wanted bing, to bing. learn Dream On, but yeah. it's too hard. Did you get it now? Can you do it now? I, I could try. I probably. I but hope. Never, you haven't I never, tried since. No, you never went back. No, I don't like okay. learning songs. Uh, yeah, I don't either. But I, yeah, I would just sing for closure. Mm. <laughs> it, it, I feel in, in, in that, like the last thing I tried to learn was the piano part to. Scenes from Italian Restaurant, the Billy Joel song. Great song. I, may, I have a lot of theories about Billy Joel being great that are... Really? Yeah, I think Are he's, they controversial theories? No, because there's nothing controversial about Billy Joel, which is probably why no one thinks he's great. Well, I don't know if that's true. I mean, he's got a temper. <laughs> Do you see the video? There's a great YouTube video of him smashing his mic. No. Oh, God. Just for fun. Just He looks like an angry Billy Joel man freaking out. But the thing is, is, so you loved Billy Joel. Well, I love Billy Joel and I love Bruce Springsteen in very different ways, but I feel like my generation has an interesting take on those two artists. Where it's Which like, is what? Springsteen's our savior. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, he was... Well, you look at like the 90s, he, he was sort of uncool for a moment, and then this thing happened in the early 2000s where all of a sudden it was like the arcade fire and everyone was referencing Springsteen. Huh. And he kind of got back the, in. After the rising? Yeah, I think it was around the time of the rising. Right. And now he's just the most important artist living to... I think a lot of people to you one of them to me why um because he well first of all he's obviously a completely brilliant songwriter but I think it's mostly in the the light I think he represents something that we don't get in modern music which is this like this like give a shit attitude integrity yeah there's an integrity to it there's an earnestness there's there's it's so it's such a weird apathetic time look okay I grew up in the 90s so yeah I grew up in an amazing time of music 
Like who were your guys? I turned on pop radio and yeah. it was like Nirvana and yeah. Pearl Jam. Right. It was it was a happening moment. Like, but then also there's the whole hip hop world that like I missed, but you didn't. Yeah, that was cool too. Like yeah. the, you walked down the street when when I was growing up. Anyone your age you were friends with because you you were a part of the same Musical great case. culture. Right. Rap rock happens a couple years later and destroys the universe. Yeah. Which who was that? Limp Bizkit and yeah, all that shit. Destroys you know, the universe. Literally just destroyed music and then. My experience, as I remember, it was everyone just scurried in all these different directions. And you had indie, and you had indie hip hop, and you right. had mainstream music, and you had pop, and it was all so separate. And when I started touring, it was this this generation of we have to be embarrassed to be in a band. This because indie it, music that didn't, exa- it didn't hate exist it. anymore. I still hate it. Touring and, in a band. Everyone was still in bands, but instead of like the the culture of the '90s of wanting to take over the world, like Eddie Vedder, right, in a cool way, it yeah. was like you had to pretend like you didn't give a shit, right. And all these bands acted like, oh, we're so embarrassed to be here, and the songs reflected it, and everything was apologetic, right. So I think Springsteen represents this like excitement about music. I'm doing a fist right now yeah. <laughs> as I talk about it, raising that, your fist in the air. We all wish, baby, we were born to run. Yeah, we all wish we could get to that. Yeah, and also he had a tremendous sense of theatrics and build in the in his songwriting. Totally, and even and then the soft. He's got everything. Mm-hmm. I'm on fire is one of my favorite songs of all time. Is it? And it's one of the most simple songs of all time. Yeah, well, I mean, I was never as a kid a Bruce fanatic. I wasn't either. It was it was later. On, it was when I was like later in my 20s and then you listen to like greetings from asbury park it's like what what is he van morrison now what's happening all right so you got bruce jersey's own yeah and you got billy joel i think billy joel through a series of fashion choices (laughs) got got not even getting pushed aside banter yeah i think he i think you know because you you sift through some of like the clarinet and some of the bullshit yeah and he's one of the greatest american songwriters and performers of all time right but he just didn't like i saw him in vegas recently and he starts playing she's got a way about her beautiful mm-hmm. song right mm-hmm. and then he stops playing it this is exactly what's wrong with billy joel and he starts saying to the audience this is fucking banter okay he yeah. starts going you know sometimes when i'm playing a song i think about what i'm gonna have for dinner mm-hmm. and we're all like what the fuck are you doing like yeah. people are like this is one of the most beautiful songs ever then he launches back into the song and in between the lyrics he's got a way about her he starts narrating oh maybe I love a cheeseburger I don't know what it is maybe I love ribs letter and he's going back and forth in like this like psychotic that's tragic it's, it was terrible that and it made me realize like this is the problem like, he, like he's his own worst enemy but the songs and the records like you put on The Stranger it's incredible all the way through amazing I remember when I got that I must have been in 7th or 8th grade and it because I saw I remember seeing him on Saturday Night Live do you know come out Virginia yeah. don't let me it's like with, the leather jacket bouffant cocaine no, no, phase no no it was before like he I don't remember him being that way but I remember there were two guitar players playing acoustic guitar next to him uh-huh. and he sat in between them uh, in my recollection of it and I'm like what is this guy I had no idea who he was and I bought that record and I played the shit out of it and it, you know, I could probably still sing all of those songs. But I think that your appreciation for songwriting, you, you know, is something. I don't know if it's unique. I, I know people write their own music, but you really understand and appreciate the craft of popular music. It's part of your thing, right? Yeah, I love popular music. Yeah, I always have. And you're unashamed of that now. I want to be unashamed of that. Uh, but you're still a little ashamed of it. I think. I think as I think until popular music really kind of gets back to. a you know, a lot of the popular music we have today, today yeah. was the novelty stuff that was one percent in the nineties. It's like Macarena or whatever, like mm-hmm. Salt and Pepper. Like those bands were like this, like tiny percentage of the radio in between the good stuff. That was like this weird novelty thing. Yeah, and now it's kind of flipped. So, I, I you know, in my head, yeah, I want to, I want to be the person to change that, but that's hard thing to say out loud. Yeah, no, it's not. It's an, it's a, it's a goal. There's yeah, a- <laughs> you know, I want, I want it to be. I want to, I want to give a shit. Well, I mean, I don't want to be like stuck in my own little world and think that that was a big thing when fun got big is like 
how do how do how do you accept a place where people are listening right and not do this a humble thing that's so humble that you're just kind of like sh- shooting yourself in the foot and missing an opportunity to do something cool well i well i think that's a that's a it's a noble thing it's it's like to sort of work against cool and to work against it's it's basically it's like a comic playing to the back of the room kind of <laughs> you know what i mean like who do you want to impress your shitty friends who are bitter anyways that's i want and, to move on from and that defeated yeah in a way and and sort of justifying their defeat ideologically by acting like they don't give a shit when they're really just angry and can't do better it's hard to let go of that though because you start like i'm sure in your work too you start only impressing those people because those are the only people who are watching and you're also sort of a weird community as well. Like yeah. they're, they're supporting you. They want you to be out of the box. They want you to be unique. They want you to represent what they want to represent, which is you know a cultural ideal mm-hmm. within that culture. But then all of a sudden, if you want to if you want to go after the Grail and do something like change popular music by honoring its format, it's tricky. It's very tricky. You have to cut some of those people loose. But you know what? They'll be back around when they're forty. I hope. Yeah, this is like, you're, these are really 20 to 35-year-old problems. <laughs> okay, good. Because if you pull off what you want to do and you continue to evolve as an artist, at some point, you're just not going to give a fuck about those people genuinely. Yeah. You're going to be so happy with your own creativity that you're going to be like, no, oh, fuck them. And you're not even going to think about it anymore. And then they'll start coming around going like, you know, I, I didn't respect what you were doing a few years ago, but like, I'm really, it's really good. Okay, cool. And you win. Waiting for it. You win. <laughs> and the guys that still hold on to whatever you're afraid of, they're going to be stuck in that shit. They're going to be 40 years old saying, they sold out. You got people in your life like that? I don't know. I don't talk to them much. They're gone. They did go away. That's good. Because, you know, because one thing I learned about uh, and it was fairly recently and in, in, in thinking about it in retrospect is that people are going to project their own shit onto you. Yeah. It's, it's not a reflection of you. They're, they've made you into something. Totally. You know, and you represent something to them. So if if you don't honor what they want you to do, it's sort of their problem. So until you can realize that, it's like, well, I got to do this other thing. Yeah, I'm sorry, but I don't really know you. I'm glad you liked that one record you liked. But you know, you're projecting your expectations on me because of your problems. So. Yeah, people get grossed out by ambition sometimes. Well, you got to hide get, it. The, yeah, you do. <laughs> I, yeah, like, I don't know. That, <laughs> I never had it financially, but I think I, I, I innately have ambition to keep going. But I think it, it's <laughs> if you're ambitious and you're successful, that's a, a toxic mixture to some people that are just uh, bitter. Yes. You know, because <laughs> then you're like, you, you don't even have a name anymore. You're fuck that guy. That's your name. <laughs> fuck that guy. <laughs> right? You're 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 fucking dead on. <laughs> That's all right. So it seems to me that you you've got enough people in the world that you aren't fuck that guy too. I but, hope. But let's go back to the punk band. So when you were in your punk band in junior high after Fizz, what were you doing? Original songs, all original yeah. songs. We but, did it. We did a couple Gorilla Biscuits and Minor Threat covers, but it was mostly original. I was always really into original music. Like back to what I was saying before, I hated learning songs. It always made me feel inadequate because I could never get it right. I don't read music. Right. I don't want to read music. Like right. I was always so excited about just the sh- the shit you just figure out. Right. And but you, I don't having don't, no idea what those punk songs are. Were they as melodic? Uh, were they as orchestrated as some of your later music? It, was it just you know three chord garbage, or was it you know were you consciously writing songs that had a, a pop element to them? No, it was very worked out. It was very pop in the way they were put together. So it wasn't like it wasn't angry punk. It was more. Um, what when did who was the first real pop punkers? 
You know, like there was a there was a time where those minor chords started showing up, and there was I, I know Green Day sort of became that, but it was well, before like in that. Jersey, it was Lifetime. Uh-huh. They were Lifetime. Mm-mm. They were like at the time people were calling it emo, which became a very bad word. But mm-hmm. li- Lifetime was like this like post hardcore, like it was like a melodic minor threat thing. Okay, when I was first growing up, that was a really cool word. Right. Um, that's when I first heard it. And uh, Lifetime Kid Dynamite, that was a Philly band. This like it, it all came from hardcore, and that's what that's what Outline was like. But what was cool about that time period was. The the sound sucked so bad at all the shows, right? That I really learned how to play live, right? So you had to put on such a good live show that it didn't matter that there was like no PA and no, right. like, so it was all about which is a, like a feeling I have this day when I walk on stage is like I got to fucking blow this thing over the top. This has to be, which is which is very connected. It's like it, it's a Springsteen slash growing up playing in Legion Hall's feeling of like yeah, leave it all on the stage, right? Yeah, because you had to fight it out for real, yeah, and you had to figure out how to 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 make you know, the sound or your tone or whatever you were trying to do. Because I know you also have a tremendous appreciation for production. So I got to assume that, you know, just being loud is not the issue. It's how do you be loud and and sort of contain and and keep your tone. We always talk about this idea of big strokes. Uh The sound guy I work with always talks about that. Like, how do you paint with big strokes live? How do you make these choices be massive? Like, if you take a guitar solo, how is everyone hearing that? If there's drums are smashing the toms, how is that, you know, like... Gotta slow it down a little. Big strokes. Yeah. (laughs) I did learn that. (laughs) You you gotta make sure it gets to the back of the room before it echoes back at everybody and becomes a mess. That's what I've learned playing in bigger venues. Right? The bigger, more brooding Uh stuff that might seem slightly boring in the studio sometimes is more exciting life. Yeah, because it takes a while to get it back there. It does. It really yeah. does. And and then it'll bounce back at you. So if you if it's almost like with comedy, it's a timing thing. Mm-hmm. In order for it to roll back all the way, you can't jump on it because it'll it'll fucking eat itself. That's why I hate comedy in big venues. No, I don't either. I don't like it either. It's a disaster. It is a disaster because you can't work at the pace you want to work at. Yeah, but you can't really accommodate songs that you can't slow it down. You, we, I've done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll slow stuff down live, or you, you strip out production. Like, I to me, it's all in the drums. You know, people have to be able to like feel like if there's just too much going on in the kick pattern or there's too much nuance, sometimes you just, in a big venue, just pull it back. So, all right, so you're playing in this punk band, but you're writing pop songs. You're aware of your songwriting skills and you are doing orchestrations of things. You're not just blasting out for the sake of getting your rocks off. You're a songwriter and you're a musician and you take it seriously. Yeah, I was very serious about it. So how do you get from there to, uh, to Steel Train? What happens? I went to public high school in New Jersey. And everyone um, tortured me for being gay. I'm not gay. Yeah. Because that was the generation of if you had blue hair, you were gay. Right. Um, I really didn't like it. Well, you're 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 sort of an, an adorable little man. Thank so you. you're going to get Thank a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I never thought I was gay. I just, it, it, actually, at that time in history, the word gay had nothing to do with homosexuality. Which right. It, this is recent history. You know, right. it was just sure. like, you're just gay. You suck. You're yeah, gay. And, yeah. and, and, and so I left that school and I went to this place called the professional children's school because my sister was going there in manhattan um which was a, a school started for ballerinas i just talked to somebody who went there yeah it's not the the one from fame it's another it's one. the other one yeah yeah um you don't actually learn art you can just leave if you want to do art okay. so i was starting to tour a little bit and i went from going to this place where everything was uh gay as in not cool to a place where i was one of two straight kids in the entire school right where everything literally was gay right which was a wonderful experience it was like it was like fucking when they whatever that story is when they leave the desert and they're in the fucking good shit or right, you know right. what I'm talking about the like, Jews yeah and they go for the 40 days and it rains bread and then they get to the good place yeah they get to the good place it was okay. like that moment yeah 
not clear on that story. Me neither. Um, Clearly, neither one of us are that <laughs> religious. <laughs> so I like I like found this wonderful place, I and met, that was all arts. All you, got, you had music people there, you had dance people there, you had yeah, actors there. Actors. Was there visual arts as well? Yeah, it, uh, there was a good friend of mine who was a painter, there was a chess player, there was an equestrian. It chess was just, is an art? Um, it's something that you need to leave school for if you're a professional at that age. Oh, okay, so it's a professional school. It's not yeah. necessarily an art school. It, it was, was more arts, but it was... So it was, it was really catering to kids who were kind of working yeah. or doing what they set out to do. And I wanted to tour. With? With Outline. Mm-hmm. The so, punk band. Yeah, so then we did our first tour. Which we borrowed my parents' minivan. I booked a tour um, from New Jersey to all the way down to Florida, over to Texas, and back. And you had juice. I mean, you had enough juice to pull people. No, there, back then there. This is pre-internet, really. There was this thing called "Book Your Own Fucking Life." Did you ever hear of this? No. It was a book that yeah. got passed around like punk scenes, right? And it had the phone numbers of everyone you needed to know. Oh, interesting. So I sat there with "Book Your Own Fucking Life" and I called all these people. We made three hundred dollars in a whole three-week tour. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was the best experience of my life, and I fell in love with touring. Were you opening for people, or no? We were playing like pizza shops. We played an anarchist bookshop called the Stone Soup Collective. Were you in pulling Florida. crowds at all? No, it was just like whoever was there. <laughs> and that made you fall in love with it. I loved it. You were like, "This is the greatest thing ever." Because I fell in love with touring before I fell in love with playing shows on tour. <laughs> because of the unity of the discipline of it, of the the, the sort of like moving from place to place. It's the coolest thing ever. It's like it's a road trip. And how many people are in this band? Who's in the band with you? There are five people in the band. And who are they? They're one one of them. One of the guys is still one of my best friends. Who and he played in Steel Train for ten years. Uh-huh. And then everyone else we've lost touch. Okay, so yeah. but well, not lost touch. Eddie, the singer, we we're still close. Yeah, but everyone else is kind of. Did they get out of the music business? Most of them. Uh huh. All right, so you do this tour, and then you, what? You get back to New Jersey, and you're all juiced up. All juiced up. You know your life now. I met this guy Scott in high school. We started playing songs together, and that was we started Steel Train. So. Okay, so but still, how do you get from punk rock? Where see this is the the the, the thing for me. How do you get from punk rock to really doing? You no, know, I guess it was popular at the time, right? Fleet Foxes and and some other like it whatever. Was before the, that, it was before that. Yeah, so it was you, Beck Sea Change came out when I started Steel Train. Okay, so there there was this reverence for the Flying Burrito Brothers for Nick Drake. Well, the and B- the, Beatles have always been my greatest inspiration. The Beatles, hundred percent. I I but I don't hear a lot of Beatles on that first Steel Train record. Am I missing it? No, it's there's not a lot there, but it's just always been that idea of kind of everyone playing in the room together, that kind of orchestration. Oh, okay, fine. I never, I never got too specific with the influence, but just more what they were uh, about. But, but, but there was a specific influence. I mean, it was it just because of that producer? I mean, the songs you were writing were it was drugs. Uh, but it did, uh, drugs it was but, so into pot and mushrooms and stuff like that. That, but you must have been listening to that music because there was an uh, there is definitely a hippie music idea. Because in of that. that, we started listening to like the Dead. So there's and, a lot of dead and there. folksy stuff. Okay, it was like, a very concentrated moment that wasn't me. What? But 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 it was you. It really wasn't. I was in this weird post traumatic stress haze. I was very like. But that that music that you were listening to and doing those drugs must have been comforting. I mean, the record is a a fully realized beautiful record. So whether it was you or not, you applied your talent to something that was making you feel better. I was in. I was. I was in a disassociative place. And I was sort of. I was outside of my body, and I think that was something that was making me feel good so I went with that but it wasn't like but did you feel connected to that community was was no. the, was the idea was like you know I can just you know open up and and lay back like was there a spiritual no. sort of notion behind it no I it just I just we just kind of got into it as a group 
It's interesting. It was like a group thing, and then very quickly we got out of it. You sat down and you listened to what American Beauty and Working Man's Dead. Yeah, and, and, and we, we called the producer Stephen Barncard, who made American Beauty, and we asked him to work with us. That so, was your that was a whim. Like maybe we could. Yeah, I remember where we we were in Anaheim, and me and Evan, the bass player, you were on tour. Yeah, we, with the with with Steel Train at that okay. time. Okay, we we took this demo we made and we brought it to a FedEx and sent it to Stephen. Yeah. And he like said, cold. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, I'm not doing anything. And he was like, come up to Northern California. Let's do this thing. We'll get Grisman out here. Literally. <laughs> that was basically the conversation. And we were like, cool. And you got that pedal steel guy? Gene Parsons. Yeah. Yeah. That's insane. Play with the birds. Yeah, it was very cool. And it was, it was the first time I felt like vaguely successful because I was playing with people who were technically successful. Right. Um, but it was always, it was, God, if I knew back then at the time, like how early on in the the you know the process that was going to be of touring and making records i probably would have just like jumped off a bridge but it's weird so you feel the need to sort of uh you know contextualize that record because yeah. it seems so out of character for you it's important for me to understand where it came from well it's it's also everything is very tied in like there's a song in there called grace where the theme of the song is the movement of a funeral like like it's very all these things are so closely connected to my experiences with your sister yeah that like it's very important for me to intellectualize it and understand where it was coming from and why at that time i felt the need to to say the things and and make it that way did you did you feel like you got any emotional closure not then that was a terrible time really So so the record didn't help no the record was um it, yeah, I don't know. It was it was just a very bad time. How I, old were you? I was nineteen, twenty. Oh, so this is like a year after yeah, it happened, like right then. Oh my god. Yeah. So that that kind of just. I got the- my first record deal. Two months before she died, it was a very weird time in life. Everything was possible and everything was impossible. It was really strange. Oh my god. Yeah. So okay, so you do that record, and what happens? Do you have a breakdown of some kind after? I didn't have a breakdown until about a year later. So the record does well? No. Doesn't. I mean, it, it kept us on the road. My, my experience, in, until until Fun Made Some Nights, it was just always... Working. Know, the perfect way to put it is is our accommodations. We started sleeping in the van at rest stops when I was on tour of that line. Then we would ask people if we could stay at their house. And then we would get one room to comfort in. Then we get two rooms to comfort in. Then we got two rooms at the Hampton Inn. Then eventually two rooms at the Sheridan. And then like, <laughs> it was always moving very, very slowly. Right. So I was never, even though the universe was giving me some information that it wasn't really working out, it wasn't specifically not working out. Right. Cause you, we, so you were opening act in steel. Yeah. Opening mostly? act or we would, or we would headline and play to a hundred people here and 10 people there. Where, who were you opening for? We did, who did we open? Like, we, we went out with Rich Robinson once from the Black Crows. We went yeah. out with Grace Potter. St- Steel Train towards the end started doing really well when we did tours with, like, Tegan and Sarah and started doing all the festivals. But Steel Train changed so many times. I mean, that's a band that should have changed names three times. So when did you hit the wall? Um, about a year after that album came out, I just I started freaking out and getting real panic attacks. Yeah. Um, which Couldn't breathe. I'm sure you've had them. You might like be having one now. The type. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, so can't you, breathe. You, uh, can't breathe. Things just. I mean, just physically. Uh, I'm. I thought I was dying, having a heart attack. Numb. Completely numb. Really, you get numb. I get hands numb. And feet? Hands spinny. Can't breathe. Just break into like an immediate like sweat, pouring sweat. And, and the worst thing is the emotional thing where I just don't know what's going on. The fucking thing is, is that like because you were not processing the grief. No. that's a fascinating thing about my life looking back on it and just about the human body is like it'll fucking come out of your body if you don't deal with it in your mind somehow your body will release it it's the worst because and and, and what happens is because I'm sort of in it right now I am not clear why 
because mm. uh, I'd just been through a couple of difficult relationships, you know. And, but um, but like you know, you're 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 doing your day, you're you're functioning, yeah. But like all of a sudden, you're just like you're like feels, you can't escape it. Well, yeah, there's almost like something is pressing out of your face, literally. <laughs> you, you, yeah, really. there's like energy coming off right, of your body, and, and you're like, what is what? What wants out of me? What wants out? And there's no triggers. It just happens. It, no, it's ridiculous. Yeah, and you you become. Were you raging out? I was, I was terrified. Ugh. And and then, as you know, when you go through this stuff, the, the first time it happens, then the fear grows into not just what it is but when's it going to happen and that's when it gets really but, bad but the problem is is if you don't believe that that it's stress in in, in, in like still i'm still not I'm, I'm not quite convinced yet i still have to go to a couple doctors okay but um but is that the physical symptoms start to you become focused on those so it, yeah. it almost feeds itself like you're not dealing with the emotional stuff underneath yeah, you're dealing with am i gonna have the, a panic attack yeah or, not, or why, am I like, having panic why is my am, do like why am i do i have ms what's happening exactly i got obsessed with with the senses going blind I would go have my vision checked all the time going deaf I, I was obsessed with my heartbeat and feeling did it did you hear your heartbeat in your ears and shit I've had that a lot god damn it and I started getting I would get these like rings that would come and go yes it, the, the body is chest like pains t- terrible chest pains I had so many what's, what's it called when they hook all the things up to you is that a cardiogram EKGs? yeah EKGs yeah cardiogram I guess it got yeah. to the point where a lot of my doctors were. I would go in they would just be like uh, you're fine yeah. I, I believe in medication <laughs> that's that's actually something that really helped me I really Wh- I which believe which one I, well, if you're having a panic attack, mm-hmm. you know, I think you should fucking take a Xanax. Yeah. Because I think you have to break the cycle. So how, like, but like when you went through that, the psychedelic period in the, re, in the weed period, you know, the, the one thing that struck me was that, you know, you, you, the music sounded so great and you're so clearly talented and so clearly, you know, like the, the fact that you trying to find your voice musically or whatever the hell was going on was so well articulated. It was very hopeful, uh, obviously. But when, uh, how much drugs were you doing? Not, not a t- I mean, we were smoking pot all the time. We were smoking hash a lot. So, but you weren't, you weren't fucking bottoming out. No, on I wasn't on like heroin or coke. I was just or drinking. No, I, I drank a bunch. I, I was just in a place. I'm very sensitive to right. anything like that. Like right. if um, yeah, I just very very sensitive. Like if I took a Tylenol right now, I'd have a feeling. Um, so I, I was just in a different place. All right. So, so what, so what ultimately happens? How do you level off? I had the terrible experience of the acid. Okay, that was referenced it. in that Bleacher song when I say uh, p- panicked at the acid test. <laughs> Panic at the acid test. <laughs> um, and, that, and then that changed everything, but I still don't really drink. Yeah. Kind of all because of that experience, the idea of being outside of my body at all just shifted. I thought I died. We were in a car and, and we were going to Portland. We were on tour and I was like, all of a sudden I was like, we died. Yeah. And I was obsessed with it and I was like, we died. Yeah. We, not- we had a car accident. This is like a different Oh my version God, of you locked into that? And then I went home and I was fine. Yeah. And then the next day I woke up and I felt like I was tripping again. So I You're ran still out. living with your parents? Yeah. I moved out of my parents' house like two years ago. <laughs> yeah. Fun had number one album in the country when I moved out of my parents' house. <laughs> Sorry, before I moved out of my parents' house. And they were fine with it because there's this panic in, at the core of your of your family. I think life they were now. Just, yeah, thrilled to have me yeah, around. Yeah, yeah. Like, we know where he is. <laughs> I've been very compelled to do a lot of things in my life. I've I was so uncompelled to leave home. Yeah. I just could give a shit. And I yeah. moved out because I got in a relationship and wanted to. Yeah. But I was there for a while. <laughs> How old are you? 30? Yeah. <laughs> so you're there till you were 28. And you mm-hmm. didn't have to be there. You could have left. Which is funny because before you're quote unquote successful in a commercial way, all the neighbors think, oh, he's in a van smoking pot playing shows. He's a loser. Right. right. And then when I was in a band that people saw, thought was a big band and whatnot, they were like, oh, he's mentally ill. So he's <laughs> just 
you can't win with the neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately, I think that not unlike the effect it had on your personal life and, and also your own creativity, it, it seems like the death of your sister really, your family needed to be close. So yeah. like, there was that. It, it worked. I probably never seemed that unusual uh, to be at home still. No, I don't think. I think I would have been more stressed out leaving home and wondering what was happening there. Yeah. So now, what album do you finally pull it together? I mean, it, so because Steel, Steel Train got got big. You did what two Bonnaroo's? You did a live at Bonnaroo thing. Yeah, we right? did. We did a lot of cool. We never really hit our stride, but we did a lot of cool stuff. Like we played on Letterman and, and Conan. Conan, and we did all the cool festivals and. But that was after you came through the the woods. After yeah. like, what album did the acid thing happen? Where, where that was on that first album. All oh, so all this happened, happened after the first album. And then 2007, we made an album called Trampoline, which I think was the first thing I've done that was interesting. It was completely a different sound. Like you totally. know, right out of the gate, there's less acoustic noodling. There's there the, you're no longer laid back drumming. <laughs> there's all of a sudden it's like Queen. You know, there's like a, there's a there, lot. There there's a bigness to it right away. Yeah. Like, the the production is, like, up front. Well, it starts with a song. The first song on that album is called I Feel Weird, which was about having panic attacks. Uh-huh. And it was very literal. So it was all very autobiographical. Is all your songwriting autobiographical? I mean, I Want to Get Better, which is the, the, the Bleacher single, is about all these stories I'm telling you. It's just from the lens of now. I don't know how to write about anything else, and I kind of don't even want to. I've never... I feel like the only thing that makes me remotely interesting is just the, what I've been through and my take on it. Well, that's how you and I are similar. I, I, I just, I like to write the way I speak. But do you also wrote, did you write a hit song for Taylor Swift? Was it a hit? Yeah, I've, I've written a bunch of stuff. I did, that's, with other people it's different though, because then you're in the room, you're talking. I don't, I don't really write lyrics for other people. Like I work on the music and melodies and stuff like. Oh, really? Yeah. Like when I work with Taylor, I did um, a bunch of stuff on, I did Brave for Sarah, with Sarah Burles. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you get gigs like that? How does that happen? Do they uh, they respect you? They like your music? Are you known by the label as like, this guy can make hits? I mean, what world is that now? Now it's a little bit of that. Now it's a little bit like people will call me because they're like, oh, this guy can- Punch you know, it up. Can make it happen. But at the beginning, when, when fun started getting big in a commercial way, I always wanted to work with other artists, but I never had the opportunity. It, it, then it was like, oh, you can do this if you want. Mm -hmm. And I started, the first thing I did was um, a song with Tegan and Sarah on their album. Yeah, um, and then I ended up working with Sarah and and Taylor, and just kind of gone off into working with a lot of different women. So women like you, I like working with women. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think I've never done anything good with a man. Why? Um, I don't know. I just I, I wish I, I think from a songwriting perspective, like like I always write a song in falsetto and then I drop it a full step down. Like I, I hear things like the way women sing. I hear things in women's voice, women's voices. Right. Um, I like women's voices better than men's voices. Right. I think they're more interesting. Yeah. There's a, a wider right. spectrum of sounds that come out of women. Uh huh. I just like it better. I like talk. I don't, men are disgusting yeah. <laughs> for the most part, you know, especially men in music. I think women in music are more interesting. Like I think men in music, like, what do you mean they're disgusting? I think I think men are more often disgusting than women. Women are disgusting, disgusting too. In what way? They're just more often. I hear here's a better way to put it. I'm more likely to be in a situation where a man thinks I'm a certain way that I'm not, and then then the situation is uncomfortable. So you I'm feel judged by men. Like if I'm if I was I've been in situations with men where they're like, oh, I you know I fucked this chick last night, and I'm, I'm just like I'm not having this conversation. <laughs> you know, like not that I I'm not interested. 
<laughs> you know, I'll, I'll watch hours of porn on my own, but like... <laughs> I don't I'd, want to talk about it. <laughs> but yeah, like, do you want to talk about that? Like, if I came in here and started talking about it, we'd have, there'd be nothing to say. It, it's an awkward conversation. And I think that, it, you know, it, it's almost a... It's almost stereotypical, and I don't know that it happens as often as I think after a certain age, because you know it's a certain type of dude that does that. Yeah, but they're around, they're in music. Well, yeah, they're around. Like, dude, last night you see that one? Yeah, they're even in their tag. They're yeah, they do interesting it. work. Yeah, yeah, like close the deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just um, that doesn't happen. There's a higher, there's a better chance that if I'm in the room working with a woman, that we're going to get along. And she's gonna, not going to say like, "This dude fucking gave it to me last night." Like you wouldn't yeah. believe. Or like I just, I just piled through, you know, <laughs> these four guys over the weekend. <laughs> You're not going to have that conversation with Taylor Swift. That no. <laughs> okay. I like women, and particularly gay women. So yeah. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Is she gay? No, I, oh, but I was, but I work a lot with Tegan and Sarah. And oh, okay. guys, so I was like, well, wait, so do we have a breaking story here? Did you just tip it? No, uh, well, that's nice. So, all right, so you ride it out with uh, Steel Train for three records. When you stop Steel Train, when you stop the Steel Train, did you disappoint a good many people, or, or was there that risk? I mean, what made you choose to end that? I didn't choose to end it. So Steel Train, was, so we did Trampoline. Mm-hmm. We did and then our last record, which was self-titled, and then I, I started, so fun started, me and Nate and Andrew started fun. What was, the, what was the idea there? Was it a concept band? Because, I mean, you were moving, it seemed like you were moving towards fun with Steel Train. I mean, you know, there was, there was that yeah. largeness there. There was a, the hookiness to it. The production was not as, I don't even know how to describe it because I'm not a music guy. Grandiose? I, I, big, it's big, but I, I don't even know if that does it. I get, it's almost theatrical. Yeah, it's very theatrical. Yeah, with fun. Yeah, but you were sort of moving towards that. Totally. And and what was the decision once you to do fun? What was the vision? Nate, Andrew, and I met on tour in two thousand four. Mm-hmm. Back in the days of five bands on tour all together, and we all had our own bands. And people started sort of dropping like flies, getting other jobs, starting families, and we were always kind of always around. Even Steel Train had some revolving members. Uh huh. Nate had a band called The Format. That band broke up. He called Andrew and I the day they broke up and said, "I want to start a band." And I said, great. So the two of them flew out to my parents' house in New Jersey the mm-hmm. next day, and we all lived there <laughs> um, for- At your parents' house? For four months. And we, oh, boy. We wrote and recorded a lot of our first album there. So Steel Train and Fun were coexisting. I was in both bands for two years. Uh-huh. And then John Schiffman, who plays, who's now in the live band of Bleachers, he quit Steel Train because <laughs> um, I think he wanted to become a paramedic because we were on tour actually I was but he's in Bleachers he's, now he's in Bleachers he's, he's had a long journey we were Steel Train was on tour I was not there that day the two days I left tour with Steel Train to like fly somewhere horrible things have happened one time they were in a van accident on top of a mountain and then this other day a truck had flipped over and there was like a guy dying on the side of the road and this guy John the drummer jumped out and helped this guy and in that moment realized he was like I want to become a fucking paramedic <laughs> So he quits the band and he says, I'm going to become a paramedic and fun was starting to take off. And it just felt like this is the moment. Like, I think, you know, yeah. this has kind of yeah. had its day. And I, I had sort of been fantasizing and even toying with the word bleachers in my head of doing something else. Cause there's so much baggage that comes with a decade of music. Yeah. Just so and much baggage with the emotional baggage, with the guys, expectations, with the music. Yeah. You just can't really, I just really started to fantasize about just doing something else. Um, and so the band kind of dissolved. Fun ended up. Then Fun had this crazy moment, which mm-hmm. no one really expected was going to happen. After the, on the second record, yeah, th- we put our second record right after Steel Train broke up. So, but the, so the 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 incentive uh, for Fun was really y- y- you were burnt out. 
from touring, from the emotional strain of of being in a band, from whatever whatever it is that burns bands out after a decade. Mm-hmm. But musically, what hadn't you done that you really that these other guys? What was you know? What did you? What what was some of the talks about? Like you know, I I want to write bigger pop songs. With I wanna, fun, yeah. The the conversations were just. I'd never really. I always wrote. Steel Train was just me writing. Yeah. Um, and then the band was a band, but I, I wrote everything. Fun was the first time I collaborated. Mm-hmm. So it was a totally new experience. You had three guys, me, Nate, and Andrew. We all, you know, Andrew wrote a musical. Nate wrote all the music in his band. I wrote the music in my band. What was Nate's band like? Called the format. Yeah. It was it was a lot like like baby fun kind of. Uh-huh. Like like a lot of sort of Nelson theatrical stuff going uh-huh. on. So you get so you get a guy that actually wrote musicals. Yeah. All of us were, were the alpha writers in our own situations and we kinda had this idea of like you know, one plus one plus one equals a thousand. Right. Maybe. Because when I listen to, right when I put on, I think it was some nights, like right away, I'm like, this is queen. Yeah, we really went for that first song. <laughs> right? Yeah, we went full queen on that. I mean, just in a, in very literal ways, like the way they stacked harmonies. But that's like, that's a very specific production. I, I didn't, it didn't feel like a ripoff to me. It felt like some sort of homage to a type of production that was very specific. Yeah, well, I mean, we love guitar solos. We love harmonies. We love string and horn arrangements. We love orchestral percussion, like these things. The Queen's one of the only rock bands that really indulge in a lot of that, so that's why the similarities And happen. also wrote pop, yeah, real yeah. pop songs, yeah. And kind of rocked at the same time. Like, right, right. And that's what- love and, all of it. And that's where, and so that's where you get your huge success. It, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but I mean, that, that song is the thing that sort of set in stone your ability to write a, a pop song, your ability to stand out. And also, yeah, I mean, winning a Grammy's not nothing. It's not nothing. It's a weird thing, because it's like, you always think of awards you're, in your natural reactions, you always want to be like, oh, fuck that. Right. But it is cool. It is well, that's that's part of you playing to the back of the room. It is. I mean, like, yeah, you can stalk all you want about, like, they don't mean anything. Yeah, but I got one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they may not mean anything, but I like to look at the one I have. I'm happy for my grandma. Yeah. Because yeah. that's like, you know, like winning Grammys is something that like she'll always have that and for she's me. still around? Yeah. One oh, of, that's one of sweet. Yeah. And she's pumped because she was, I mean, she had to live through the whole, like, what the fuck are you doing phase. Uh-huh. So with think, the with the with ten years, yeah, with with ten years of like it's it's getting better, like you know. Well, how do you, how did your parents react to it in general? They always were so on the inside that I think they were just drinking the Kool Aid with me. Oh, they were. Yeah, they were just like part you, of the. You delusion. sold them. Well, no, I don't know if that's true because most of the time parents are just worried about whether or not you're going to earn a living. For you, they're concerned for you. Yeah. And and I I think that at some point, you, given that your father was a musician, your talent must have been undeniable. I think they were always. Uh, I've got them to admit once. I did this one show very early on at the Knitting Factory, and it's the only time that I've ever heard my parents really say something horrible where yeah. my dad has said to me since, he was like, that was the only time I was ever, ever thought to myself, like, maybe you shouldn't do this. What what happened? We were bad. <laughs> we were very bad. <laughs> really bad, huh? But I also think losing my sister and all that just kind of, like, really turned the whole, like, got to make a, like, you know, my, my parents come from parents of depression mentality. Sure. You know, like, you make a living, That's that is the goal of your fucking life. That is yeah. it, you know? And then they're an interesting generation. And then I think when when we lost our sister and all that, it just, I think everyone stopped giving a shit about everything, kind of. Right. You know? Because you realize how fragile it all is. Yeah, my and dad unfair. would give unfair. Yeah. Unfair. And it's also, obviously, it's the worst thing ever, but learning very specifically how unimportant money is. Yeah. And no matter how, you know, my, my dad had right. money and he paid for every possible, my right. parents' treatment that you could. Right. The Didn't matter. Money can't buy it. So I just, 
I don't think they gave a shit and I didn't give a shit. And my parents would give me $300 a week when yeah. I wasn't making money. And right. That's what I would live on. Right. They, they're, 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 some premium was put on uh, you know, living life to its yeah. fullest. And I didn't care. I never... Money and success were never connected to me. Yeah, and, I'm, and me neither. I just never gave a shit. I think that's one of the, 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 the privileges of growing up in, a, in an environment like that. Yeah. That, you know, when you have supportive parents, you know, one way or the other who have money, you know, you have to be taught the, the, the importance of money in that way. And if, if that's not part of it, the value system necessarily, yeah. you know, you're sort of left to wander. And, and, and I think it's contemptible from, you know, from other people's point of totally. view. Totally. You know, that like you're entitled, you're spoiled, you're this, you're that. But it also provided us an amazing freedom to, to roll the dice. Uh, you know, it, the thing is, is that when you do succeed and you come from that background, there's always going to be haters if you have any problems at all. Yeah. You know, and, and but, you know, when you don't succeed, then you're just another idiot that squandered mm-hmm. their fucking life. <laughs> it, you know what I mean? That just sabotaged their own opportunities. Like, what the fuck is the matter with you? You had you could have done whatever you wanted. Yeah. And now look at you. <laughs> you know, but then if you do make it, it's like, nah, you, it was yeah, easy. Yeah, you suck. Yeah. yeah. It was an easy ride for you, wasn't it? People love to yell about that. But the fucked up thing is, it's like, no matter what. Like, you know, you, you're going to get shots, all right? Even if, even if your shot is, is a gift of some kind. Even if you get a shot because you're connected or whatever the fuck it is. If you suck, you still suck. Right. Yeah. You, you're not going to stay up there. <laughs> totally. <laughs> that, that's what always fascinates me about people thinking, like, that, that you know, advantages are, are amazing. But, like, a 15-year career or, like, you, it just, there's not too many accidents. You kind of have to still fucking... Right. You have to be no, good. You have to show up for work and you have to deliver. Yeah, you have to be great. You know, no one's going to be like, no, no one's going to carry you for, what, a decade? No. You know, and you, I mean, I mean, people know that you're with Lena. I mean, she deals with that shit all the time. I think it's so funny because it's like, it's. I say the same thing in my head. Everyone's like, oh, all these people on the show, like, have, you know, successful parents in arts. It's like every successful person in art, which is millions of people who have kids, aren't on tv shows yeah because, i mean because like no one if someone called me and was like if like you know if phil donahue called me and was like hey like my son wants to be in a band i'd be like go fuck yourself phil. like like it, it just it's irrelevant it is it, the quality of the work is the quality of the work and i think it's i just think that people love to um I, i've done it myself regardless of any opportunities i've had sometimes i remember when the strokes came out and i just hated them yeah and i love the strokes more than anything now <laughs> right because i was so jealous when they came out because like i looked like them and i just wished that i was in the coolest thing in new york right at the time well, that's what and it really comes like, down to i, I would I remember like being in conversations like oh that guy's fucking dad is like a, yeah. a modeling uh, agency billionaire yeah yeah and it's like well that's not the reason why Julian is one of the greatest songwriters of my time. Well, take, see, it takes a grown-up mind to realize that. You but have to get past get your it. own, uh, you know, jealousy. Yeah. It's really that simple. Fuck I, him. Lena and I talk about that a lot because it's it's something that's inflicted on the young. Like, no one on earth when Judy Dench wins an Oscar is like, oh, that piece of shit. <laughs> like, she had it easy. Yeah. <laughs> or like, you know, when Helen Mirren, like, it's, it's, when you're young, all these young people, I feel it, and I've, I've done it myself, you know, when I was a certain age, I would look at everyone my age, you know, doing music and being successful, and I would just talk about how much they suck. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't go after, I wouldn't have obnoxious feelings about Nick Cave. Right. I would, would be people my age. <laughs> right, exactly. And I think... Um, it's just you jealousy. You see a lot of that. You it's know, just jealousy. It's, it's, it's interesting, though. Everyone, there's a lot... We live in a culture where people do want to see people crash and burn. 
Well, yeah, it's uh, it's weirdly uh, predatory. Until they're like oddly proven, and then all of a sudden you're untouchable. Right. And but there's still people out there, but they kind of fall away. And and, and as you become more confident and, and more respected or successful, you know, the people that are knocking at you, it's very, it's very easy to see where they're coming from. Totally. But yeah. it is, Twitter makes it hard. I know because it's because it's just said to your face. I know, I know. It's, it's immediate. I, I have problems with that. I mean, you know, you get me on a bad day, and I'll engage I with just somebody mean, like, with six followers. <laughs> I do it too. Someone tw- this, this this someone this morning. I follow Walgreens on Twitter. Yeah. Um, because I was at a gay pride parade once. I saw Walgreens float, and I thought it was cool, so mm-hmm. I followed them. Yeah. I've I've not been this angry in a long time. This morning, I got a tweet that someone was like, "Jack Antonoff follows Walgreens. Like, nice job with the corporate payout, you piece of crap." Hashtag unfollow, and it made me irate. Yeah, I wanted to like find this person, yeah. strangle them to death, and then yell mm-hmm. at their body. Right, that I'm not being right. paid by Walgreens. Can, yeah, can a guy like Walgreens? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's what you get pissed off. I'm no sellout for Walgreens. <laughs> out of all the things you're going to sell out for, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on the I'm on the dole from Walgreens. <laughs> Ridiculous. All right, so okay, so Fun has these two, this great big record, and you what immediately decided you do solo project. What's that about? Um, I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it's funny. I wonder how. Like, I always get afraid. My biggest fear with Bleacher is that it's going to look reactionary. But then reactionary towards yourself. Well, I, I hope people. This is the dialogue in my head, which maybe no one would ever say this. Um, I, my fear is that people are going to be like, "Oh, this guy's apologizing for being in a big band by doing something else." But then I would hope they hear it and be like, "Oh, it's not him hunched over as a guitar apologizing. It's just as grandiose as everything." I was wrong. That's what I would hope people would think. Right. But that was a fear of mine. I, I made the album because I wanted to make the album. And I felt compelled to do it, and that's you never know when when you're going to want to work. Songwriting is absolutely bizarre, and so you, I force myself to sit down every day and and work. But you know the the you I can work for three weeks on something and then be on a run and then sing an idea into my phone which makes everything the past three weeks irrelevant Nothing. right yeah right and for some reason i was never able to write on tour before i don't know what happened the past two years when i was working on the bleachers album truly unideal time to make work ideas started coming and i started recording for example like i want to get better i did the vocals in my hotel room in malaysia i did the guitars in the studio in stockholm i did the drums in new zealand like it was just happening all over the place so you'd like get a, a flurry and be like, get me to a studio or you brought the equipment with you? I mostly did it in my hotel room, but I'd go to the studio too. So the actual mix is, is was recorded in these different locations? Yeah. And then I'd bring it back to New York and work with John Hill, who's one of the producers on the album. And we'd sift through all the stuff I did and be like, this is garbage. This is What are you recording on? Pro Tools. In, oh, just on your computer? Yeah. Wow. I, have a, I have a pretty good setup at this point. And that I, you can travel easily with? Yeah. Huh. It's and, fascinating um, the way that you, you know, how seemingly easy it is to have it's access crazy. to amazing technology i love it yeah and i do a lot of what i do is sample based so i'll start a song like i want to get better not to keep referencing that but only two songs are released so yeah like all those piano samples like that's all cut up and done on an mpc mm-hmm. and that was my idea for the album like a lot of like this super you know like created in in a box stuff mm-hmm. tied with super organic stuff at the same time in a literal way right well, I mean, that's a, it, it, it's fascinating to me that like, I, cause I know that like if I wanted to, like I record in GarageBand and, and I only know how to record voices is, is that like if I just took an hour or two and learned how to use it, I could probably have a lot of fun with my equipment in here. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't do I it. I hate it too. I, I mean, have to I learned the thing. I learning like if I got a TV, I would throw away the manual right away and spend yeah. seven years trying to turn it on. 
yeah. And that's my experience. Like I could, if I spent one day, I could probably make my life way easier. But someone, what? Someone sit down and show you stuff? Is that the way you are? It's like, dude, you just have to. Yeah, know, like uh, I'll be in sessions. I was, you know, it was it was with Max Martin the other day actually. Yeah. Um, and we we were working on something, and I was kind of watching him. I was like, oh fuck, like. <laughs> You could just do I that. I can do that, and then and then I save seven hours every day doing this new thing. <laughs> That's great about technology. But then I have this idea, like I don't want to get too good at the computer stuff though, because right. I'm scared it'll fuck me up. Why? In what way? Um, I don't want to go too far away from just like what the song is. Um, right. I, I get that. You want to keep it sort of organic. Yeah, I don't want. I don't want to get obsessed with things that not everyone is paying attention to. Where are you? How do you feel that you finally were able to process the grief? Did it just, was it just time? All, all time. All time. Time and, well, really just time. You just discover things. Mm-hmm. Over uh, To quote another doctor, I saw a doctor about a year ago in Japan. I was having a panic attack. I thought I was dying. So I, I was like, I have to see a doctor. This doctor comes to my hotel room and he said something to me, which has really changed my life, about grief, about my body, about hypochondria, about all of it. He looked at me after he took all these tests. And I knew nothing was wrong and he knew it. And we were kind of sharing this horrible moment where yeah. he was understanding that this was all emotional. He looks at me and he goes, it takes decades upon decades for someone to understand their body. And it like resonated with me so much. And, it, and I take that for the mind also. And for everything I've been through, it takes so long to understand it. And so, and, and you just chip away at it slowly and slowly and you you get closer and closer to not dealing with it, but just being Okay. Right, you know, and just not feeling. My my goal for my life is to feel like I'm in my body. Right. When I'm at my worst, I'm outside of my body. Yeah. And I feel like I live in this place of sort of wavering back and forth, and I'm happy when I feel like I'm in my body. And that doesn't mean I'm not crying. It doesn't mean I'm not terribly depressed or anxious. You know, I like the idea of losing someone. That's forever. Like if you, you know, if if someone you love went to camp and they stayed for a week, and yeah. then they called them staying for another week, you'd miss them more the second week, and then they called and said, I'm staying for another week, you'd miss them more the third week, and that that goes on forever. But that's that that's human, and that's that that's worth something, but the all the fear and the anxiety, like that stuff is what corrodes at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just started to think about getting, moving on from that. And, and also just, you know, there, you know, like Jews, where did you ever reach into your spirituality at all? Did your family ever? No. It's interesting, right? I hate it. But but oddly, you know, when you think of Shiva or you think of the process of mourning, uh, you know, within a community or, or Shiva is a beautiful thing. Well, it is because there, like, it seems to me that with grief, the emotions are so profound, and if you're capable of stifling them, you know, you will out of fear of your own emotions and a fear of of acknowledging the, the closure of it. But I think that the the idea of Shiva or the idea of of almost you know consciously experiencing grief. Is is a profound and 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 healthy process, but but I, I don't know how I would have dealt with it. It's it's hard to learn to let yourself go there. Sometimes I get in these like two month stretches of not going anywhere emotionally. Then you remember. Well, it's, it's weird. Good to go. I, I, I it's not like for me. One of my bigger problems is that because I'm self involved, and I think people that have the type of panic you're talking about are self involved, and you've got a lot of voices in your head. Like if that tweet didn't happen, you would have second guessed it at some point. Mm. That you're, you, it sounds to me like you're you're doing a lot of second guessing what you think people are thinking about you and how to counter that if it does happen, how to put it into a perspective for yourself, how to rationalize it if it, you, you know, yeah. that that's how your self judgment plays out in your head. So the actual idea of of empathy and and being able to get out of yourself. To experiencing, you know, someone else's pain or pathos or even joy or happiness, 
it's it's not it, it's not instinctual with people who are ambitious and self-involved it's not and it feels good when you can do it it does because yeah. you're like i'm human yeah. i'm human <laughs> <laughs> do you do a lot of the music for girls i've done it, things here and there but not you're not i do like i do like the fun stuff like if like like when Marnie writes songs in the show, I write those songs. Oh, okay. You know? And and do do you and Lena try to keep your shit separate as much as possible? Not in private. Oh no, no. But I mean, like professionally, is there a? No, there... we love. I mean, she just directed the video for "I Want to Get Better." Oh, okay. Um, we 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 do our best job at trying to not give a fuck about all the obnoxious things that people. It's hard to be in a relationship where anytime you say anything about it or do anything, it becomes like a fucking headline. Yeah, right. But, you know, there's nothing more awesome than working with the people you love. Right. And if media ever, like, dictated something that I wouldn't do that would make me happy, that'd be really sad. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? Yeah. But it's a weird, you know, I mean, she she's very famous and that's a, it's a fucking weird thing. Yeah. You know? But you're handling it? Yeah, it's, it's also ridiculous. It's like, you know, we have our own life. Yeah none of you know we don't do anything to perpetuate any of that stuff and it's a weird stressful thing but we both have really exciting careers and and it'll it'll just be what it is it's it's interesting to see how the culture kind of uh you know out of need for controversy makes you know these kind of uh, these malignant assumptions mm. about people's lives where you're yeah. just sort of like we're just eating you know <laughs> and also like we live in a fascinating culture which wasn't the case you know it used to be like us weekly stuff and this or that but the internet has changed everything to, to just the headline yeah you know it's like the headline just becomes like a meme yeah like someone there's just a headline that was just like lean and i broke up and that was just the headline. that was it and then the story was that like someone saw us having a fight on the street it, well, none of it was even true but like it just like but then that's the, that's it that's the headline or like when bleachers was first announced i remember the daily mail in uk just wrote jack Hansenoff leaves fun <laughs> Which wasn't true. And then you read the article, and the article was like, Jack has a new band. We wonder if this will be a problem with fun, which it isn't. But like, it's just, it's just, throwing just, that question out there is not that, but that's the headline. Right. Because there's such a hunger for content and such a com- competitive nature to what. And so much people, content has to happen so quickly. Well, yeah. And also, they want people to look at it. So, yeah. like, you know, they, and they don't give a fuck who they hurt or why or whether it's right or wrong. Because what's the worst that can happen? The cease and desist? Okay, we'll take it down. But it has a real impact. I mean, it's like. Sure, it does. People say stuff, and then that becomes things that come up in every interview and then it becomes truth and it just becomes you know it's just it's very intense i i, uh, I really hate a lot of uh people who write for stupid websites <laughs> it's the worst so you want to play some songs yeah i'll play a song um hey i hear the voice of a preacher from the background calling my name and i follow just to find you i trace the faith through a broken down television and put on the weather man i've trained myself to give up on the past because Frozen time between oysters and caskets Lost control and I panicked at the acid test I wanna get better While my friends were getting high Chasing girls down parkway lines I was losing my mind Cause the love, the love, the love, the love, the love that I gave Wasted on a nice face In the blaze of fear I put a helmet on a helmet Counting seconds through the night and got carried away That's why I'm standing on the overpass Screaming at myself, hey, I wanna get Didn't know lonely till I saw your face. I want to get better, 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 better. I want to get, I didn't know I was broken till I wanted to change. I want to get better, 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 better. I want to get up to my room where there's girls on the ceiling. 
Cut out the pictures and I'll chase that feeling of an 18 year old Who didn't know what loss was Now I'm a stranger And I'll miss the days of a life still permanent More than the years before I got carried away That's why I'm staring at the interstate screaming at myself Hey, I wanna get Didn't know I was lonely till I saw your face I wanna get better Better, better, better I wanna get Didn't know I was broken till I wanted to change I wanna get better Better, better, better I wanna get better Cause I'm sleeping in the back of a taxi I'm screaming from my bedroom window Even if it's gonna kill me Woke up this morning early before my family From this dream where she was trying to show me How a light can move from the darkness She says to get better And so I put a bullet where I should have put a helmet And I crashed my car cause I wanna get carried away That's why I'm standing on the overpass screaming at myself Hey, I wanna get Didn't know I was lonely till I saw your face I wanna get better Better, better, better I wanna get Didn't know I was broken till I wanted to change I wanna get better Awesome. Cool. Thanks, man. Thank you, Mark. All right, that's our show from New York, from my hotel room, looking down on Bowery uh, and 4th Street. Uh, what, what, I'm, I'm signing off. Like uh, this is Mar- I'm Mark Marin. Thank you for listening. No, go to WTFPod.com for all your WTFPod needs. Watch Marin on IFC. I'll be in Denver, Colorado. Uh, tomorrow night and um, right now what am I going to do I got to go figure out a place to upload this stuff that's what I got to do I'm going to get more coffee New York New York it's a wonderful town I I, I need one of those uh, machines that change the pitch can I, can I put one on here for when I choose to sing one line or something? Boomer lives! <laughs>